1: Come to the laboratory at once! I'm
0: standing right here, Dr. Wolfenstein. And it's Gregor. Remember? We had that talk.
1: Of course we did, Hodor. Now I want you to see my latest creation. What is that? It's a six-foot-tall vampire bat with the head of a cobra. I call it... Snat. Do you see what I did there? Snake? And bat? What's it for? What do you mean, what's it for? What kind of question is that? It's for... just to be what it is, and go kill people. I'm a mad scientist. I make really scary things, and they go, and they kill the villagers. That is my jam.
0: But haven't you made a lot of that kind of stuff? Last month, your kangaroo tiger killed hundreds of villagers.
1: The tigeroo? You mean? Well, of course it did. That was the whole point. What's gotten into you?
0: It's just that people really hate you.
1: Well, they don't hate hate me. I'm more like one of those villains that people love to hate.
0: No, that's not true. People just hate you.
1: Really? Because I thought, well, I do a lot of bad stuff, but I have my own moral code.
0: And what is that?
1: I I don't know. What are you, Charlie Rose all of a sudden? We have to change this. I want to be one of those villains with a fan base. I mean, Hannibal Lecter has fans and he eats people.
0: M- maybe if once in a while... You made a nice thing, like a butterfly that dispenses penicillin.
1: Hmm. Butterfly? Penicillin? I've got it! Mothicin. Get it? Moth? Medicine?
0: Also, if we could have a human resources department, so I'm not always totally exploited.
1: Fine, fine, fine. I'm writing this down. How do you spell resources?
0: Maybe you should just introduce the show.
1: Yes. And now, worthless fools, prepare to face a show that will destroy the very... What were we
0: just saying?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, A very nice show that you will enjoy quite a lot. And now he believes the Wicked Witch's flying monkeys have a sympathetic backstory... Colin McEnroe.
2: There's no chapter of PETA in Oz. That's the problem. If people understood the flying monkeys and why they do what they do, then they wouldn't be so scary. Uh, At least that's one theory. So we're going to talk today about the nature of villainy and whether or not our understanding of what villains are and what pure villainy is is altering over time. We have great guest here for you. In studio with me is Brian Francis Slattery. Uh, His books include the soon-to-be-released The Family Hightower. You have enough time right now to go pre-order it from R.J. Julia, uh, and then I'll have to print more of them. Uh, and also joining us in a little while will be uh, Brett Martin. He's a correspondent for GQ and the author of Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, but in just a second, I, earlier today, because uh, he couldn't join us for a group discussion, uh, I'm, we're going to hear an interview with Chuck Klosterman. But before I do that, Brian F- Francis Lattery, welcome to our studios. Hey, it's good to be here. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit with uh, Chuck about um, a conversation that focuses a little bit more on, on television. Vision and a, a little bit on movies then we're gonna swing back to you because I mean one of your specialties is science fiction and fantasy and comic books and stuff like that, where a lot of these lines have been blurred right
3: yeah, absolutely that, that's been going on for a while and um what's pretty interesting about it is the way that you know a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of science fiction and fantasy and comics have have been playing with these ideas and what's more, more what's more interesting about it is the way that those titles have become more popular over time, you know even even when I was a kid and i'm I'm almost forty when I was a kid. Um, You know, those things felt pretty marginal, and it's very interesting that they've become
2: mainstream. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's start with this uh, interview recorded a little bit earlier, Betsy Kaplan, today. We're going to start this conversation out with uh, Chuck Klosterman. He is uh, the ethicist with The New York Times and the author of I Wear the Black Hat, Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined. Welcome to the show, first of all. Hey, thanks a lot. So, you know, in your book, one of the things you talk about is uh, the character Omar Little in The Wire. And one of the things that you mention is that President Obama uh, has singled out Omar Little as uh, his favorite character from, from The Wire. And like a lot of people who watch The Wire, President Obama, and I think you, have kind of a rooting interest in Omar Little. First of all, explain for people who Omar is.
4: Omar Little is a character in The Wire who initially appears uh, as sort of a, this figure of doom. He seems really dangerous. And then you come to realize that he is a criminal who only preys on other criminals, that his uh, his ethic seems to be that uh, as long as he is stealing from thieves, there is no problem with what he does. Uh, later you find out that he's gay, which is a, a sort of a surprising and well-orchestrated reveal on the part of the TV producers. And, uh, you know, he's uh, actually based on a real character from Baltimore. Uh, many of the criminals in The Wire, many drug dealers, people in the drug game, are sort of composites of actual uh, people.
2: But it is sort of interesting. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a watershed moment, but it's interesting to have the president of the United States talk about his heroic projections onto this guy who, in the last analysis, even though, yes, within the corrupted and corrosive world of the wire, he's kind of a Scarlet Pimpernel-type figure, but uh, still to have the president talk about this stick-up man and say, you know, I really like him a lot, I, I, it's sort of it's an indication maybe, or I guess I should form it phrase it as a question, is it an indication of the way our attitudes towards heroes and villains are shifting?
4: Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, there are two things at play here. One is that... The Wire is ultimately a political show. I mean, every season of The Wire essentially focuses on one sort of problem in the culture and, uh, you know, it was built around the idea one season is about the idea of totally legalizing drugs in certain areas of the city. One season is about problems in inner city education. So, you know, for the president to be interested in The Wire is a, a little less surprising uh, than it might have been in the past also because race is such a huge component of that show. I guess what is more to your point though what the, the interesting aspect is the fact that who we went back into the 70s or the 80s and a presidential candidate was asked or a president a sitting president was asked who their favorite character on their favorite television show is they would be very conscious to pick almost the safest possible answer. they would pick a character who uh, would almost, universally be seen as positive, uh, an unreal character if possible. So there'd be no risk that someone could read something else in uh, pejoratively about the decision. But when you pick someone like Omar Little, you're picking somebody who murders people in the show and who does sort of live in a a, a criminal underworld and uh, is homosexual. So the fact that it is now more seen as interesting for a president to like a character like that than it is meaningful, I think, shows how central the idea of antiheroes now are in the culture. That's kind of almost the only hero we still
2: have. Yeah, I almost would reject the term now anti-hero. I mean, anti-hero was sort of a term in the 60s and 70s, and so you had Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider. Those were kind of maybe kind of anti-heroes. You know, to me, what we have now are kind of anti-villains. They are if anti-heroes were heroes who implicitly rejected some of the quintessential fundamental characteristics of the hero. What we have now are villains like Tony Soprano, Walter White, Dexter, Frank Underwood on House of Cards. These Characters who are essentially villains, but they reject most of the negative baggage that goes along with villains, and and they and we wind up rooting for these people. I mean, in each of these cases, if you're if you're watching this program, you're not watching a program where the good guy prevails every week and the bad guys die. You're watching a program where people who are remorseless killers prevail every week.
4: Well, you know what, what really has happened is is this idea we're talking about. It has always sort of existed in different sort of idioms, but it only moved into certain modes of entertainment, like, incrementally. Like, you can go back in literature, you can find this kind of character that we're talking about, you know, in the 17th century or in the 18th century. You know, that had already existed there. In film, you really saw it in the 70s when the auteur movement happened films like The Godfather, all those early, really good Jack Nicholson films, Easy Riders, another example of that. It was, you know, suddenly you could have for 90 minutes or two hours a traditionally bad villainous character sort of be the center of the story. In music, in the 80s and 90s, especially in heavy metal and hip-hop, it became like a central characteristic of the performer, that if you were involved in rock, that you were sort of uh, antithetical to whatever had been the conventional way to live. And then it happened finally in television in the 90s. It really starts with The Sopranos. You know, like, you, I think you mentioned, like, when David Chase was making that program, his fear was like, well, will people be able to accept someone like Tony Soprano? Well, if you will be able to accept the fact that the story is mainly about a person who is, you know, uh, you know, kills people, who's involved in organized crime. And not only did they accept it, they totally embraced it. Like they loved this character. And since then, almost all high-end television has been like this. Whether it's The Wire or Breaking Bad, uh, even to a degree, Mad Men, you know, House of Cards. You mentioned this is all. This is just the way it is now. And I think what has happened is this: you know, heroes in fiction are aspirational. That we see heroic figures and we think to ourselves. Boy, it would be great to be like that or to know someone like that. It almost seems like an impossible dream. Whereas villains seem more real because we see ourselves in them. So When we see someone like Walter White or Don Draper or whatever, we don't necessarily think that's how I am, but we know what we're capable of. And we start seeing negativity as, like, almost as a more realistic depiction of the human experience. So whenever you hear an actor saying, like, well, I wanted to play a villain in this Bond movie because the villains are more interesting, I think what they're actually saying is I wanted to play the villain. It's a more authentic way to be. You know, it's a realer version of of a person.
2: Well, you know, I think you're right to a certain degree that if you go back hundreds of years in literature, you can find some of this at play. You can find it in Paradise Lost, right? The devil gets Mm -hmm. all the really good lines in Paradise Lost. He's a much more interesting character than anyone else. But it does seem to me that if you look at 19th century literature, nobody really wants to be or wants to see himself in Ralph Nickleby or Wackford Squeers in Nicholas Nickleby. Those are bad guys. And, you know, and and the call of, say, say, Charles Dickens is to everyone, there are really bad guys out there. there and as a result it's imperative that the rest of us be good you know that we be good that we be agents for moral action um and i do think that there's a shift from that kind of thinking to the kind of thinking that's that summed up in some of the, the the cultural products we're talking about right now, and I wonder—I'll just bounce this off you—whether one of the things that's happened is, and you certainly see it in the wire. I would say you see it in House of Cards. This attitude that the system stinks, the system itself is the real villain, and then people who are will, who are able to operate effectively within this corrosive, toxic system are potentially heroic, even if it's somebody as sleazy as Frank Underwood. It's there's still something heroic about his interest in exploiting what's basically a broken and sickening system.
4: Well yeah, you know, I guess I would agree with you. I, 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 now that you mentioned this I, a, a couple of years back, I wrote something uh, about the television show Breaking Bad, and I was talking about how uh, how kind of in this golden age of television, there seemed to be four programs that everyone concluded uh, were like the apex of this mountain. And it was Breaking Bad. Mad Men, The Wire, and The Sopranos. And I was sort of arguing that Breaking Bad was the best. And the, re- and the basis of my argument was that in those other three programs, the negativity of certain characters actually reflects what you say. The system is the problem. In The Wire, it's where you're brought up. And that if you're, you know, if you're brought up in the streets... Uh, You become a drug dealer. If you're brought up in the suburbs, maybe you become a cop, but you're ultimately the same kind of person. In Mad Men, it's all about the time it's happening. So if people use women or have racist ideas, it's a reflection of it being 1962 um, or whatever. You know, in The Sopranos, it's the culture of organized crime. These people are raised in that world, and therefore they're sort of operating within the only framework they know. Breaking Bad is different. Where you had a character consciously decide to become a different kind of person. That the Walter White character starts as this, you know, this chemistry teacher with cancer, impossible not to like, impossible not to relate to, and then over the course of the many seasons, decides to become a full on criminal. And that, to me, what made that show different was that it still offers a possibility of free will and agency and and that being a bad person was a choice. But you're very much right. In most examples in modern media, the idea is that the people doing bad things within that world are simply behaving the only way you can in a world that's broken.
2: You know, I'm so glad that you you mentioned Breaking Bad because it very much is the trigger point for, for this conversation. We're talking to Chuck Klosterman uh, right now, by the way. Uh, his books include I Wear the Black Hat, Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined. So I wrote a piece about Breaking Bad for Salon.com right as the series was coming to a close. And I, I, as my jumping-off point... I started with the presumption that everybody understood that Walter White had become a monster. You know, I mean, he, he's not Omar Little. He's not simply sticking up and knocking off other bad guys within the system. He's, he's, first of all, I mean, the meth that he's selling is just uh, an incredible predatory thing, laying waste to all kinds of lives. But we also, we watch him watch a, an essentially innocent but inconvenient girl choke to death on her own vomit. He stands there and does nothing because she's in his way. He needs her he needs her gone. We discover that he's poisoned a little boy. He just in order to manipulate uh, his uh, his closest associate, Jesse. I mean, we we see him doing just deplorable things. So I sort of thought that as a society, as a TV-watching society, we all understood that Walt was a monster and was going to have to die at the end. And I discovered in the comment section to Salon that that was not a latent assumption with everybody. It There were a lot of people who still saw him as heroic, as morally ambiguous, or, and this came up again and again, as the little guy sticking it to the man somehow, uh, uh, the little guy taking his destiny into his own hands, and that's when I began to wonder whether we're all on the same page about this stuff. you know do do because of because of this era of the morally ambiguous villain, do people even understand when somebody really is being a monster?
4: I have to say within the context of television, though, it's kind of confusing because there's a little reverse engineering with this specific example. Here's what I mean by that. you know people. I think sometimes don't realize how the degree to which they've been unconsciously trained uh, by television grammar in the sense that when we watch a television show and we start watching a program, particularly if you start with the pilot, you're introduced to one character who is the center of the show. And since the dawn of this medium, the idea is that whatever character that is, is the person you experience the show through. So we're introduced to Walter White as a totally good person, Uh, like just holy good. Uh, Maybe in his world, uh, the best person, if you judge from that very first episode. And then he slowly becomes evil. And it's hard for people to break out of that paradigm. It's hard for them to have been introduced to a show through one person to then say, like, you know what, I'm jumping off this train. I no longer relate to this guy. So as they're sort of carried deeper into the seasons of Breaking bad, they have to sort of justify why they're still rooting for a person who basically is ruining the lives of everyone around him. And a lot of the examples you use, I think, are people's attempts for them to understand how they feel. They're conscious of the fact that it's weird to still like this guy.
2: Although sometimes the evolution works in, in, in sort of the opposite direction, if you think about a series like Deadwood where we meet Al Swearingen, the first thing we know about him is he is a ruthless killer. That he, he will he will send out road agents to murder innocent Norwegian Christians uh, out on the trail and, and, and take all their stuff. And then, very much in the style of Paradise Lost, we start to wonder we start to we're invited into his way of thinking and realizing, well, he does have sort of a moral code, it's not our moral code. Mm-hmm. And he's a heck of a lot more more interesting than anybody else in the series
4: that's like the complexity of art i mean you watch like uh there will be blood and the performance of the main character in that film is so is, is is so sophisticated and so interesting and so nuanced that almost the artfulness of the performance makes us halfway accept the behavior of someone who has no redeeming qualities You know, I mean, I think it was the same thing with Deadwood. I mean, that character was so well-performed. It's almost like an actor or an actress can make us accept
2: And some of that is the difference between television and movies, right? Alan Rickman in Die Hard is a lot more interesting than Bruce Willis. I mean, he's fabulous. He's a, Hans Gruber is a great villain. But he, we also understand that Bruce Willis has to, end, has to prevail at the end of the movie and that Hans very probably has to die. Whereas today, I mean, if you look at a show like Dexter, this is effectively— I mean, I don't know whether you could do a show where every week Hans Gruber shot another version of Hart Bachner uh, and then just moved on to the next week. But today we're very interested in what an entertaining guy like Hans Gruber slash Alan Rickman, how he runs his shop, how he runs his operation, how he survives from week to week. Um, And and some of that, I think, is because that kind of serious dramatic writing and character development switched from movies to television where you got to have somebody really interesting every week on the show.
4: Oh, like the, the, the series Justified, for example. We have a – Penny Oliphant's character in Justified uh, is fundamentally a pretty heroic character. But the way that character is introduced was almost purposely complicated because they just – there is now an assumption that if you give an audience a one-dimensional positive character, it's just going to seem totally false. You can still give the one-dimensional negative character. That people will still be sort of um, amused by somebody who's just, you know, like uh, you see this in Game of Thrones sometimes. There'll be a character who's just they have no redeeming quality whatsoever, and it's kind of entertaining. But a purely positive character seems fraudulent, and it might lead to (laughs) something. You know, might be a product of what you're saying. It's it's an interesting transition. It's almost as though when I was growing up, a little kid and. Somebody would be talking about a movie and, you know, they would say like, oh, uh, it's a really good movie, you know, it's so realistic. Over time, I came to realize that meant people die at the end or that that it ends unhappily. That realistic became code for a non-happy ending. And now that's so ingrained in the culture, I don't know if there's any separation. The idea of a story where the good guy wins in the end in a conventional way is kind of a fairy tale now.
2: You know, um, just back to Justified for a second. I mean, the, the great irony of Timothy Timmy Oliphant's career is uh, he's once been crowded out of the frame a little bit by Ian McShane as uh, as uh, Al Swearingen, and now, yeah, he's nominally the heroic figure on Justified, but really the performance of Walton Goggins and the the character of Boyd Crowder, this unbelievably colorful villain, this guy you can't take your eyes off, and this guy who does uh, episode to episode on many episodes the the struggles of Boyd Crowder, who's a neo-Nazi drug-running murderer, but he's just utterly charming in every other possible way. I mean, he is in danger of becoming the hero of that series.
4: Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, villainous characters can still surprise people by suddenly doing something good that doesn't negate all their negative things. However, a real positive character can't be as surprising because one really negative move sort of destroys everything. If there had been an episode of Happy Days where, like, Fonzie raped someone or something. <laughs> that would have destroyed everything else about Fonzie. Yeah, they never no re- going back. They never released that,
2: that episode. That episode's still uh, in the can. They have it, but <laughs> it has never been released.
4: <laughs> like, you have, know, like, there's just, you know, uh, the hero has less room for error, so you know, the villain has unlimited room. The villain can be good 95% of the time and at least during that 5% when they're terrible, it's like, ah, oh, he's still a bad guy. You know?
2: you know, one other theory that I wound up kind of toying with about all this is, you know, is the transition we made. It's documented in this uh, classic book from the late 60s, early 70s by Philip Reeve called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, that increasingly we see things in terms of a therapeutic model as opposed to, uh, Reeve would say sort of a religious model, but we could say a moral model based on good and evil. So you know that kind of thinking, which probably dominates society now, invites us to look at even Darth Vader as not just Darth Vader, but some kind of psychically wounded Anakin Skywalker. Right? Every villain has a backstory. The backstory is worth considering. Even Voldemort, I think we at least sort of see him kind of go off the rails a little bit. Uh, Everybody has a past and probably has a past before life began to warp them towards this neurosis that then turns into villainy. Go ahead, react to that.
4: You mentioned that this uh, this book I wrote, uh, I Wear the Black Hat, this is actually sort of referenced in the introduction. The fact that you bring up Darth Vader is almost ideal, because I think that there is this maturation process that happens, and Star Wars is a great way to sort of understand this, that when you're a little kid, like when those movies first came out, and I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you know. The character I liked was Luke Skywalker, who's purely good. And then you sort of move into high school and maybe early college, and your relationship to the Star Wars films are different, but you still sort of understand the story and therefore like Han Solo, who is a good character who seems bad. Like, he's a he is a criminal, he's a smuggler, he kills people, all of these things. But you know, fundamentally, he is good, which I think is how a lot of high school students want to feel. They want to, to, to project the idea that somehow they're dangerous, but ultimately want to be good people. But as you become an adult, suddenly the character that is interesting and essential is Darth Vader. And I think that is because as a person ages, that they, they start viewing their own life Um, kind of through the prism of their experiences. And they start feeling as though the decisions they made and the person they are weren't necessarily their own doing, that they were formed and they were made into a certain kind of person. And if that is the case, well, it's also true for Darth Vader that he was formed into this person and that there is a vulnerability inside of him and a weakness and that he's created this hard black shell on the outside to sort of protect reality. So, you know, we talk about the idea of, like, therapeutic that's that's an interesting way of looking at it because it's you know you can still be sympathetic toward the villain the hero needs no sympathy like the hero i guess might demand empathy you're supposed to feel sort of a kinship with whatever his or her goal is but i wonder how how true that is i haven't read that book i don't know is that is the what is sort of the premise of that book
2: it's a somewhat crabby and uh, quasi-obnoxious book. Uh, my recollections of it a little bit is a little bit poor. I read it in college, but my recollection is that Reef basically argues that that as the therapeutic model begins to replace the religious model, it's harder and harder to think morally. By the way, I love what you I love that notion of of Darth Vader growing this black shiny shell uh, to protect this damaged, frail, soft-boiled egg that lives well, inside yeah,
4: it. Yeah, and I like this therapeutic thing because you know I see grains of that, um, kind of in a problematic way, in a lot of TV recapping. Because, you know, that's such a central part of watching high-end television now. There's this whole culture, like, you know, music criticism is not as important anymore. Filming criticism isn't as important. There's so much TV writing. And very often when you see them talking about programs, if they have a complaint, it is that the show is not sort of satisfying or reflecting the way they want the world to be. So if they're writing about Mad Men again or whatever, that they, they need Don Draper to change or, or that they don't like the idea of the show perpetuating the premise that somehow he is the star of this program by being this sort of womanizing boot out, it's almost like they want the show to be their version of therapy. They want to see these characters change. They want to see Walter White become, you know, a punished or whatever. It's an interesting thing. I don't watch television or film like that. I'm probably not the typical consumer of these things. But, I, I mean, I know that I certainly never have that desire. I don't – I'm intrigued by art uh, where the bad person sort of gets away with it or succeeds um, because I think in many ways that's part of the purpose of fiction, so that, that we can sort of have these experiences that in life – would be terrible you know in life i don't want a murderer to get away with it but in a book i do because that sort of brings in these questions that most of the time we're just unwilling to sort of deal with
2: that is the perfect place for us to end our conversation chuck klosterman thank you so much for your time chuck klosterman's books do include i wear the black hat grappling with villains real and imagined thanks
4: for having me on man
2: i guess we have to go out with the darth vader uh, death march there all right thanks (laughs) Bye 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 All right, we're back and we've got a lot to react to. Uh, Here in the studio with me is uh, writer and musician uh, Brian Slattery. Uh, His uh, next book, his upcoming book is The Family Hightower. You can pre-order it right now at R.J. Julia. You should do that, absolutely. Um, And in just a second, we'll also add Brad Martin. He's a correspondent for GQ and the author of Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. But Brian, you know, I want to come back to the first thing that you said right at the beginning of the show, uh, because uh, I'm even older than you are, uh, and so I grew up in a comic book universe and a kind of a fantasy universe where there were these clear-cut lines. Mm-hmm. There just really wasn't any question about whether Superman was a good person or not, or even Batman was he was not what he has become. But maybe we should start with X-Men, because the whole beginning, even the beginning premise of X-Men was the X-Men conceivably could be misunderstood, Right.
3: Yeah, I mean one of the, I think one of the things that has has made the X-Men um you know in some ways ahead of its time and now very much of its time is that it was it was one of those it was one of those comics where the the idea was that you know, the, the the people the characters in the in the comic are are mutants. So they so they sort of can't help what they are. They have these superpowers and they didn't really ask for them and they didn't really ask to develop them, but you know, they have them. And it was it was one of those comics that really went headlong into what that would mean for the person who had these things kind of, you know, they were just saddled with them. And, um, you know, so you have you have heroes and villains in the in the sense that people usually understand heroes and villains. But, um, you know, ultimately, the heroes and the villains are driven more by their relationship to the rest of society than they are by some antagonism, you know, among themselves. You know, the the thing that creates the antagonism is that, you know, the heroes believe that society will eventually accept them if they do enough good things, and the villains have given up.
2: Well, and from from day one, the worst villain that the X Men, the worst nemesis that they had, was this guy Magneto. Right. But as this as Magneto's story has played out, both in the comic books and on the big screen, a few things have happened. But one of them, I think, you can analogize a little bit to Omar Little and say one one of Magneto's messages to the X Men is: Yes, I'm a villain to you, but there are so many worse things than me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you know one one of the
3: things that that you guys were talking about was the idea that uh, you know people like their villains. I think as long as they are preying on people sort of above them, whatever the heck that means in the context of the system that they're working in. You know, like we like Omar because he preys on other criminals, um, and you know to, to to some extent we rooted for Walter White in Breaking Bad because he was taking on other drug dealers and usually drug dealers who were you know more powerful than he was. But you know, we we what what made him ambiguous to some people and to me pretty difficult to relate to is when he preyed on people who were below him and like I found his you know, the family scenes were almost unwatchable to me <laughs> and you know the uh you know the, the you know when he watches when he watches Jesse's girlfriend die and to the to the point where like at the end you like the, the people that they had to come up with in order to get you to root for him a little bit at the end were like among the most reprehensible people you could possibly create you know they were neo-nazi white supremacist you know they they just piled it all on to the point where you're like, okay, these people are worse than he is and they deserve whatever they're going to get from
2: him. But you know, just uh, just to go back to the X Men for a second, the other thing that has that's happened, which I, I you and I were talking before the show, it strikes me as kind of a risk. They've taken uh, this Magneto, who really was sort of the ultimate villain, the guy who was at least bent on the destruction uh, of the X Men and yeah. uh, on uh, the destruction of humanity. And humanity. Yeah, right. humanity. He regards <laughs> humanity as the, really the, the big the big enemy. Uh, right. And and he's not always wrong from the point of view of mutants. But they did this other thing to him, which is it goes back to the Anakin Skywalker thing. They yes. gave him a backstory, and once again they picked the worst possible people just like you're saying with breaking bad right
3: yeah absolutely i mean the the, the backstory they have for Mag- magneto makes it you know makes it almost difficult not to sympathize with him i mean he's they they make him a holocaust survivor you know who's you know who's who has who's watched you know he who watched his mother being killed and who you know who, who underwent all kinds of things and his and his his story of villainy is is in many ways a pretty uh pretty uh um yeah, identifiable sort of revenge fantasy. Who wouldn't want to take revenge on the on the people that had had done these horrible things to his family and his people?
2: I mean, in a way, I, you know, in, I know in some of your pre-interview notes, uh, you you reference Nietzsche. There is sort of a progression towards Nietzsche, right? That I mean, Nietzsche kind oh, yeah, of rejects the idea of the old <laughs> philosophers' notions of good and evil.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that like you know what what we sort of what X-Men really wrapped it's wrapped its arms around from the beginning and what a lot of what a lot of comics have have drifted toward ever since and so in some sense moved very quickly toward is the idea that you know the rest of society is pretty uneasy about the idea of heroes and villains you know when when uh, you know when when writers take that idea seriously you always have it that the yeah you know, the, the authorities are not really sure what to do with all these vigilantes running around you know, that the heroes are, are in some ways as likely to end up in jail as the villains are if they're not careful about what they do or they don't craft their alliances carefully enough. You know, so that in many ways the heroes and villains start
2: to look much more like each other than they do like anybody else in the book. <laughs> I like that. Let's add uh, to the conversation also Brad Martin. As I said, his uh, book is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. So, Brett Martin, you've been listening to this whole conversation. Uh, I assume you have uh, all kinds of things uh, that you want to say. And, uh, of course, we have covered a lot of the themes in your book without uh, in, in getting you as involved as you should be. But... Um I guess I'm also wondering. Just listening to what Brian is saying, I, I'm also wondering whether there's sort of a progression, you know, a progression that keeps going. That that, that there actually is a journey that we're on. That even st- if it starts with Tony Soprano, now we're at Frank Underwood, who I, I feel like I see fewer and fewer redeeming characters with these villains.
5: Right, right. I think that's actually true. Um, I think, well, just just to to, to address one thing that, that Chuck said very eloquently. I mean, I think that the arrival of these kinds of characters on television after a long and, and distinguished career in, in, in other kinds of art um, is actually in some ways the best argument you can have for television having ascended to the to the level of art. Um, I think that where you find uh, these kinds of characters um, tends to be the dominant art form of its time, which is really what, what I um, argue television has become, uh, particularly this kind of drama has become to to this to our own you know first few decades of the 21st century um but i do think that uh, i think that you know beginning with tony um what you had was um a case where where the backstory um didn't necessarily do enough to convince to uh, make you fully sympathize with him. it just did enough to make you somewhat sympathize with him and so what happens is that the the um the show becomes about in some ways your um, problem with Tony your problem with whether you are um, uh, sympathizing with him or not, whether you're rooting for him or not and in fact is a constant challenge I mean one of the things that I think that that show does very well and I think that uh, Mad Men does well and and I think I mean, all the shows that we're talking about that are truly successful is uh, every time you're starting to feel a little bit complacent and a little bit uh, comfortable in your affection for uh, these guys they pull the rug out from under you and and, 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 and you know, remind you uh, their true nature. Um, I would agree that, that Frank probably is somewhere on the far end of the spectrum and, um, and doesn't have that kind of obvious uh, redeeming quality. Um, but, uh, but I do think that he's in that tradition.
2: You know, um, just back to you, Brian Slattery, for a second. Um, it's interesting. I just want to sort of um, react to and get you to react to something that Brett said because it seems to me it seems to me that the other thing that we see it's not just that television is the dominant art form of its moment, but whatever art form has aspirations to art, whatever cultural form has aspirations to art. So when I was first reading comic books in the fourth and fifth grades, you know, my teachers said that carpet comic books were junk, and I don't think they really knew what were, what was in the comic books, but I think what they were thinking was this very unsubtle unnuanced landscape uh, you know that that is just sort of a, a fantasy right a fantasy of somebody with superpowers mm-hmm. who can who can get rid of villains and as comic books had to start to have more dreams for themselves they had to get into this more ambiguous landscape
3: yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean i think that there is a i mean there's certainly a sense um i mean you know it's kind of you know, I mean, this is this is weird for me to talk about because you know what what uh, Chuck Classroom was talking about, where you know as you as you age, you start to identify with different characters. I mean, this the movement in comic books, I think, happens to coincide with my own <laughs> adolescence. So you know, as but I I mean, certainly comics said so, you know in starting in about the 80s, I think people really started to notice in the 80s that there was a a real push in comics toward this much more, um, you know, conflicted notion of hero and villain and what that means and what that means for society. And, um, you know, since then, I think the complaint has almost gone the other way, you know, which is that people are saying, you know, you can't have a – there's no hero that isn't damaged anymore. There's no villain that doesn't seem sort of partially redeemable, you know. And it's, you know, to the point where it it can – become its own sort of convention, you know, where, of course, the hero is damaged, and of course, the villain is redeemable. Well, what's been you happening,
2: know? I mean, I, you could have a better apprehension than I do of what's happened to Batman, but I, my sense is yeah. that Batman is, he's hovering around the 50-50 mark these days. Oh,
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, there was a there was a point where Batman was, I mean, largely due to this writer, Frank Miller, Batman was kind of recreated as a, as a like, pretty much a borderline psychopath. He's dangerous. He's a dangerous guy. And writers since then have run with it, you know, to the point where, you know, the the new movies definitely embrace that, you know, that that Batman is a dangerous guy to be around, you know, when he's around, you know, buildings tend to blow up and, you know, bad things tend to happen to people who are hanging around them.
2: You're listening to one of our favorite shows from this year. We did it in April. It's about villains. You probably figured that out now. Uh, Brett Martin, who's the author of Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, from The Sopranos to The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Brian Francis Slattery, one of our favorite writers and thinkers. You just heard from Chuck Klosterman. I probably don't even have to tell you who he is or was. I do want to quickly remind you, fifth anniversary birthday party for this show. We want to throw a party for you, the people who made this show. Uh, you're the fans. You're the listeners. You're invited. It costs a whopping $5 to attend. You can learn all about it at wnpr.org slash events. Go there. You'll find out. You do need to reserve your ticket. But uh, other than that, we just want to welcome you with open arms. And if you don't go to that, but you've got the following evening free, that's Wednesday, October 1st, we've got an education form. Not an education forum, a forum about what it means to teach and learn. Try to get all the all the policy arguments out of this debate and talk to people who really care about teaching. It's a fantastic panel. Go to Watkinson.org. It's part of the Freshly Squeezed series. You're invited. We'd love to have you there. Uh, We'll be turning it into a radio show as well.
1: Starting to understand why none of the big comic book companies pounced on my proposal for Ethical Humanist Boy. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and Tess Aronson. Greg Hill appeared in the introduction and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hellboy. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton Show staff recipes for human liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now... Back to
2: Colin. Right now we're talking to Brian Francis Slattery, a writer, musician, and editor. uh, Brett Martin, whose book uh, is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from the Sopranos and the Wire uh, to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, You know, actually, I've got a couple of things I want to bring up with Brian. But before we do that, I want to go back to Brett for a second and, and just bring up one thing. You know, everything that we're talking about and everything that you talk about in your book is happening in a very specific universe or or subset of the popular culture, right? It's happening on pay cable it's happening on HBO and Showtime it's happening uh, you know in a place where a certain kind of audience goes and meanwhile the larger audience I assume is still watching NCI or I don't know CSI I don't know what those CSI I don't know what they all but I mean they're watching shows I think that probably do have slightly more conventional heroes slightly more conventional uh, dichotomies between good and bad if you go and look at the world of the movies you know there's a million stories of movies where the filmmaker really did want to have an unhappy ending and because of focus groups and marketing testing and pressure from the producers. It was, no, 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 the good guy's got to win, you know, or we can't sell this movie. So, I mean, is it really the case that the mass audience wants to see these morally ambiguous stories in which the villains are, are, are more appealing, or is it a subset, you know, a sort of liberal arts oriented subset of that audience?
5: Well, I think that's actually, I mean, I, I think you put your finger on it. I think I'd go so far as to say it's the fact that these things can exist Supported only by the subset that allows them to 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 be the way they are. Um, I mean, you you are absolutely right that the that network television, mainstream Hollywood films uh, tend to be uh, the same as they ever were. Which is, um, you know, David Chase's quote in my book is, or he he told a fellow writer, you know, your job as a television writer traditionally was to sell uh, soap and and put people to bed comfortably at night. Um, there's part of what allowed this to happen is that um the the you know television had always been the um it, it was a matter of faith that television was the inferior medium and that's because it was uh, controlled by advertisers and the the great god of ratings was sort of you know decided everything it was only once you have cable fragmentation and um the fact that um Brand and um, being talked about became almost as important as number of eyeballs. That allowed more interesting stories to 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 thrive on television. Um, so you're right. I think we have a you know a, if you're if you're in a particular world, there's an echo chamber that makes you think that everybody has watched um, knows exactly what you're talking about when you're watching when you're talking about Mad Men or Breaking Bad. And the truth of the matter is, these are tiny audiences compared to to the mass culture. Um, and uh, thank goodness that there is now, you know, a sort of economics in place that allows uh, that, that um, you know, work to be made for, for that small an audience.
2: Um, Brett Martin, it was so great to talk to you. The book's fascinating too. It's Difficult Men. It's the story of some of these uh, these cultural products. You know, Brian Slattery, I'm going to ask you to put on your other hat as a musician, because well, one of the things that Chuck Klosterman said kind of triggered some thoughts of mine too, which is, once again, if you go back far enough, there's a really interesting and kind of standard dichotomy that can be summed up as Elvis versus Pat Boone, right? Mm. Uh, Elvis embraced all kinds uh, of disturbing qualities, that, and Pat Boone was the sanitized, angelic version of all that. But it does seem as we progress, some of those darker qualities are amped up and ramped up and ramped up in music. And I'm not even sure they're entirely balanced anymore. I don't know who the Pat Boone of the moment is. We could probably try to figure that out, but or maybe there just isn't one.
3: Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, like, I mean, you know, for, for you know, music, musicians, like to say that for you know for thousands of years, musicians have been like, you know, people like their musicians to be weirdos. They like them to be outsiders. They like them to you know, at least put on the air of living a life that's very different than the ones that most people live, you know, whether that's true or not. But yeah, I mean, definitely musicians now, I mean, in the I, I can't think of a really good, you know,
2: <laughs> analog to someone like Pat Boone. There, there I don't, probably isn't one, but instead, yeah, what we do have, definitely. I mean, like in our conversation before yeah. the show, you mentioned Prince, who who arrives at this moment where, and you could probably do a better job encapsulating this yeah. than I can. I mean, Prince, I mean, because Prince is one of those guys who comes across
3: as just super freaky, right? I mean, every time you see him, he looks, he looks pretty different than he did the last time he showed up in public. <laughs> and he's doing a different kind of music, and he's got a different kind of band, and it's like, you know, everything is, everything is recognizable as him, but it's also you're left wondering what exactly
2: he is. Exactly. And, and, and I, sometimes he, I think, even suggests himself as a synthesis of these two qualities that we're talking about. Because early on, there, was a, there were a lot of religious elements both in his music and in his statements about himself, right? Yeah, that he took God absolutely. and religion very seriously. On the other absolutely. hand, he had these rather extreme attitudes about sex and, uh, yeah.
3: well, sex mainly,
2: actually. But you know, his, his persona <laughs> is so weird and
3: interesting that you know
2: there was a, somebody,
3: somebody at one point managed to get a take a photograph of what was inside his refrigerator and ask him to comment on it, and it was fascinating. And it's fascinating because he's such a fascinating persona. I mean, he's constructed an amazing musical persona for himself. But uh, you know, there's another guy who, who came to mind when, when I was listening to Chuck Klosterman, mm-hmm. who is, is like, um, you know, talking about really kind of embracing what, what could be a pretty dark past is someone like Jay-Z, who has, made mm-hmm. no, who has made no bones or even really apologies about where he came from as a drug dealer. And that has you know as as you see him sort of rise to fame and rise to prominence and rise to power, you know it's you're still kind of rooting for that guy, you know because you you see him as like having having you know taken a pretty amazing path you know from where he started to where he is now, both in his music and and as a person,
2: but I think that kind of transition. Uh, is appealing to people too. Like, oh, yeah, you know, Rilka says that all of our dragons contain princesses. You know, well, what if all of our dragons, our drug dealers, and our vampires, and what if they all turned out to be kind of nice and funny and better people than we had really suspected? Yeah. I right. think we like that idea. All right. Well, I've, since we have, we've got about two or three minutes left, we should just quickly talk about vampires because vampires, we grew up with, I grew up with really scary vampires. There wasn't anything good about vampires. Right. And there wasn't anything morally ambiguous about vampires. They wanted to suck your blood and turn you into a vampire. Yeah. Uh, and Anne Rice probably is the trigger for getting vampires onto a more shifty, sketchy kind of ground. But you also mentioned uh, a character I sort of forgot about, Spike, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I, as far as I understand it, because I'm one of those people who watches the interviews of the DVD collection, I happen to have of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, he started off as kind of, you know, they thought he was just going to be a villain of the week. And he ended up being so popular that they they kept him on, and they had to develop stories for him, and partially because the actor was so fabulous, I think mm. too, you know, they they took that character from being you know a, a pretty much one note, deeply villainous person, to you know to being like a seriously complicated character, you know, kind of at war with his past, and at war with himself, and at war with his motive, his conflicting motivations. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know it's, like, it's like you were saying with Chuck Klosterman, that, like, he, he had so much room as a, as a villain to do anything that it made him a real pleasure to watch because you really didn't know what he was going to do.
2: And, you know, I mean, just to go also back to Klosterman's kind of uh, three or four ages of man in terms of being a Star uh, Wars <laughs> fan. You know, I think another part of this is when you're an adolescent, one of, the, one of your fundamental suppositions is nobody understands me. I am mm-hmm. being misjudged. And I think that, you know, that may explain some of the success of the Twilight series, too. It's like, I'm a vampire. I'm a warrior, But you don't get me, right? Yeah. Yeah, you want to quickly yeah, to no, do 30 I mean, seconds on that yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that even shows up in some of the more,
3: you know, some of the more conventional things that we're seeing now are like, you know, the Thor movies, like Loki, the, the you know, the bad brother who does terrible things is a much more interesting character and i think i think the writers know that and judging from the actors expression on the screen even they know that
2: i see i think also one of the fundamental transitions you could even look at it from i will now try to link twilight to breaking bad Uh, there's a here's a jump but no i mean i think as a teenager you're what people are what teenagers many teenagers are saying is you don't get me and you think i'm bad but i'm really good you just don't understand me you the adult world don't understand me as we get older, the idea that we might be dangerous is much more exciting to us. So Walter White's fund- <laughs> fundamental message is, you don't get me. You think I'm innocuous. You know, you think I'm this gelded, you know, <laughs> science yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah. But I'm really dangerous and I'm really <laughs> bad. And, you know, as you're about 40. You're about ready to make that transition, Brian. <laughs> we'll just see about that. Right, okay. <laughs> see, that was a very villainous <laughs> statement. That's the kind of thing villains say all the time. We'll just see about that. All right, Brian Slattery, thank you. So much for joining us today. Uh, the the next Brian Slattery book. Buy all the rest of the back catalog now, so you'll have plenty of time to read the family high tower when it comes out in September. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Igor, this idea for an egg carton flower pot is a terrible one. But I really put my heart into it. I'll put your heart in a blender. <laughs> ah! I'm calling HR. Call HR. It's one 800 ha 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 ha